That Medic Podcast, your bi-weekly dose of education and inspiration in the healthcare field. Hey everyone, I'm Simmer, a student at Harvard University. And I'm Daniela, a student at Oxford University. And this is That Medic Podcast. Enjoy! In this episode, I have the privilege of speaking to Dr. Lyons, best-selling author of medical thrillers and former pediatric ER doctor. We discuss her medical and writing career, as well as advice for medical students interested in writing. I hope you enjoy the episode. Before we launch into the episode, I want to briefly tell you a bit about Amboss, who are kindly sponsoring the podcast. Created by a team of dedicated physicians from around the world, AMBOSS is an interactive library of over 20,000 medical topics interlinked with a question bank holding more than 5,500 clinical case-based questions. With all the necessary resources in one place, AMBOSS instantly delivers up-to-date medical knowledge to students, physicians, and faculty globally. AMBOSS has powerful learning and clinical tools combined into one platform, making studying a breeze and life on the wars easier. With the AMBOSS library and question bank side-by-side, students can look up terms instantly when solving questions. Students and physicians around the world use AMBOSS material to excel in their exams and on the wards. Sign up in minutes at AMBOSS.com. Try AMBOSS risk-free with a trial today. Hello, welcome to the show, Dr. Lyons. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. We have a tradition of starting each podcast episode with the question, why medicine? Okay, so you start right off the top with what is kind of a crazy story. (laughs) (laughs) I never dreamed that I would even make it to college coming from kind of working class family in rural Pennsylvania. But in junior high and high school, I joined in with our drama club. Those were my best friends. I worked summer doing behind the scenes stuff for the community theater and our summer stock theater. I even got paid for working uh, like lights and stage managing and stuff like that. So I kind of caught the theater bug and I thought, oh, if I make it to college, I'm going to do something in the theater and I'm going to be a theater major. So I got scholarships and I made it to college, started taking my theater classes, and I realized there's a lot of drama that doesn't need to be here. And then my junior year, our biology teacher announced that a homeless gentleman had died during the winter, so they were presuming hypothermia. And the local coroner was allowing a handful of students to come and attend his autopsy as a public service for educational purposes. I thought, wow, what a great way for someone who may not otherwise be memorialized to not just contribute back to the community, but also to never be forgotten. It was me, my roommate, who was a dance major, so she was very interested in anatomy. And then the guy who drove us was the son of an orthopedic surgeon. So he was like, yeah, I'm going to be a surgeon. Yeah, yeah. Well, he didn't make it past the front door. (laughs) My roommate and I, we got in there. We put gloves on. We're like helping with the dissection. We're asking all these questions. That was it for me. I was hooked. There's so many mysteries in the human body. Like who could resist that? And why would I want to put up with some people that 
are manufacturing drama when there's real life drama right here in medicine. So I switched my major and I ended up in medical school and that's how that happened. Wow, what an incredible story. What was medical school like for you? I read that you worked during medical school and also wrote two novels. How did you manage to do all of this? Because medical school is so intense. It's basically because of the intensity that I did that. I was broke. There's no scholarships here in the States for medical school. So I juggled a couple jobs, transcription, doing research, data entry for a couple studies, waitressing, whatever I could fit in around class schedule. I loved it. It was among the best four years of my life. At this time, medical students were often in the hospital over 100 hours a week of clinical time. And we started our clinical hands-on rotation second year. So that was three years of quite intensive studies. But it prepared you to be an intern and resident then because you didn't get coddled as a medical student and you were treated as part of the team. So you had a significant amount of responsibility despite being a student. And I love that. I just thrived in it. But given the hours and the hard work, I needed some kind of creative outlet. I'm a very much an introvert. So I needed some way to kind of process all this chaos and energy going on around me, especially once I made it onto the wards and, and direct patient care and responsibilities. So I've been a writer and a storyteller all my life. I use that as my creative outlet. And so I wrote two science fiction stories, neither which thankfully will ever see the light of day. <laughs> they were just crazy. Let my imagination soar. I never thought I would be a published author. So that immediately took away any fear of deadlines or any strain or pressure. It was really a very selfish I just needed a way to rejuvenate my energy, and that was my way. Some people exercise or run marathons, and mine was writing novels. You mentioned that you've been a writer your whole life. Do you remember the first time you wrote something as a child? I was a storyteller my whole life. One of my earliest memories, I was probably like 18 months old, is taking my mom's hair curlers and turning them into puppets and doing operatic puppet shows, often for no audience. I kept up that storytelling tradition. I went to a Catholic school and the nuns didn't really appreciate the fact that sometimes I couldn't parse truth from fiction. So it got me into trouble quite a lot. I've always told stories. I've never been a good at keeping a diary or a journal or anything like that. But for me, it kind of solving problems by putting characters into trouble and see how they figure their way out. And that's probably why I write thrillers. It's like, okay, what could be the worst thing that could happen? Oh, the world is ending. Okay, how do we fix that? That's kind of where it started at a very young age. And I'm still doing it. It's just part of who I am. That's so lovely to hear that you've enjoyed storytelling your whole life. Switching gears a bit to your medical career, what stood out to me was that you worked with the SWAT police and firefighters on cases. What was that like? Oh, that was great. I'm just totally get along with any kind of first responder personality. Being a woman pediatric ER doctor meant that I often got assigned what are the cases that no one else wanted, like the sexual assaults or the child homicides. So I worked quite closely with the police department on those and a really horrendous one where 
a very seasoned firefighter broke down and I had to physically restrain him from going after a perpetrator who is a family member, I started to get involved in critical incidents, stress debriefing and stress management. So I would do that for first responders as well as our ER personnel. I was already an advanced life support instructor. And in fact, I had written chapters for pediatric advanced life support textbook and the pediatric trauma life support. And I was one of the first instructors that developed that curriculum to take it into first responders. That meant that I was working hands-on with a lot of them, teaching them, but going to them. So instead of them being intimidated and coming to the hospital on their off shifts, we would actually take all our gear and go into the firehouse or wherever we needed to be. And doing it on their environment and encouraging them to practice with their own gear was just fantastic because most first responders are also experiential learners. They see one, do one, teach one, or save a life with whatever they've learned. That was great. And then we did a a study about how to protect first responders, police and fire, in EMS from the local gangs and teaching them, this is in Toledo, Ohio, where the gang territories were, how to read the graffiti. Based on that research, at the time, the firefighters and paramedics wore navy blue tops and the police officer wore black. Well, if you're a gang member and you see a bunch of sirens coming and you see someone in a dark colored shirt, you can't tell if they're a police officer or a firefighter. So we actually got like a uniform change where the fire department and the paramedics went to the light blue top and various protocols where they would work together and making certain that scenes were secure before they approached them. And this was decades ago. So this was not done at the time. Now it's all become kind of routine protocol for most urban areas. That's also kind of where I got my bug for thriller stories, I guess, as opposed to just medical type stories. I love using both. I use anything I can from more of a law enforcement point of view. I have a lot more first responders in my books than most medical thriller writers do. And then, of course, I try to get to the real heart of the emotional truth of what happens when you're in the middle of something, whether it's in the ER, ICU, or out in the street taking care of a critical incident. It sounds like you've had such an incredibly varied career as a doctor. After 17 years of practicing medicine, you decided to leave medicine to pursue writing full-time. What was making this decision like? It was both the hardest decision because at that time I had a lot of patients that I had literally taken care of from delivery at the hospital on and families that they'd see me in the grocery store and recognize me. I had bonded with all my fellow practitioners. We had nurse practitioner, physician assistant, and then I think there was four of us MDs. I had still written. And I had gone to a couple conferences, not just about writing, but also about the research behind writing mystery thrillers. And they were sponsored by the Mystery Writers of America. And they were great. But then I met other people that were just like me. Because until that time, I was just that I was this strange person. No one at home knew I wrote. And that was just like this quiet part. I kept very private until I met other writers at these conferences, and several of them were already published, and we formed a little online critique group. They read my work, and they were like, okay, why weren't you pitching to agents and editors when you were at that conference? And I was like, well, I never 
thought I was good enough to get published. And they're like, oh, no, you're there. You need to start doing this. So I entered a national writing contest and I was a finalist. And that led to me getting my first contract. I was also working full time, which as a community pediatrician is about 70 to 80 hours a week, depending on if it's flu or RSV season. It was really tough to try to do everything I could, the writing, because I mean, I, I wanted to be a professional, just like I treat my medicine as a professional. I couldn't really skimp out on both. So the first thing I did was I cut back to quote unquote part time, which was about 40 to 50 hours a week. But still, it was enough that I had time to dedicate to the writing. And then I got a contract for another book. It just was like, okay, am I really going to give this the best shot? I mean, I've been doing this my whole life. So I decided to go ahead and take a sabbatical and give myself 18 months. And I had saved up money so that I didn't have to worry about not getting a paycheck right away. And of course, I had money coming in from the contracts for the books. It was a very difficult decision. And it was also a huge leap of faith. That was, well, May 5th, 2006. That was my Independence Day. I haven't looked back since. The, I actually never even needed to tap into my savings. The writing has been paying the bills and paying the mortgage ever since then. I last year published book number, I think it was 47 or 48. So it's been a lot of hard work. But honestly, I've been able to reach so many more people I sold over 3 million books, I think 14 or 16 different languages and translation. You start getting email from people saying, thank you, this book saved my life, or this book taught me some. The first one I got was from a cancer patient who said, I stayed up all night reading your book, and I didn't feel any of the pain. Thank you for giving me that peaceful night. I've been extremely blessed to have two careers that I as a human individual got so much out of but I also had the opportunity I feel to give so much back to other people so that's been very gratifying that's so incredible I'm curious when did people in your life find out that you were a writer and I left my job as a doctor and they all thought I was crazy and that and so did my partners they were like you sure you don't need to see a psychologist or something my family knew it was real because my first book when they released it it was a bestseller and so it was in Walmart which is where my family shops <laughs> when they saw my book on the paperback rack of Walmart they're like oh my god she really is doing this but I don't think they believed it until then Wow, seeing is believing. <laughs> now I'd like to talk a little bit about your writing process. I was watching one of your interviews and what stood out to me was that you said something along the lines of, it's not what you throw at the characters, it's how they respond. And that their response is shaped by their past and personalities. And you want the situation to make them grow. How do you come up with their past and personalities? Do you start with character profiles or do you come up with the story first or does it depend on the book? Almost always it's the character. Now that I had several series going and I know those characters so intimately, I might start with a story idea. But the way I know a story idea is the right idea is because it is going to test my characters. It's going to literally throw them in a crucible of fire and they're going to have to figure out how to get out. Because that's truly how we reveal who we are. It's actions, not words. I used to teach a lot of 
writing classes. What I would tell everyone this, that I have found is most helpful is to start with the characters, what I call their default action. Are they someone that leaps without looking? And usually this default is something that we learn when we're very young because it's our method, our strategy of coping with the world. And it's worked for us until page one of the book. So let's say you might be someone that was taught at a young age that little girls are seen but not heard. At the start of the book, that character might be someone that has great ideas, but she doesn't voice them. And she has to learn to find her voice and the courage to be wrong and to take the responsibility for saying what she believes and standing up for it. And these little default actions, a lot of people would say, well, that's just such a cliche. Well, they are, because human beings, we don't have an infinite number of ways to react to anything. We tend to react in very structured methods as kind of determined by our society. I start with that. And the way I find that piece of the character is I look at their childhood. Young called it the psychic wound. There's a lot of different names for it. Lisa Crone talks about it's what the character needs to unlearn that they learned as a child. And what it is, is as we mature, we come up with better ways to cope. But characters in the book, the dramatic storyline that we want to see, that character arc, is when they're learning to cope with adversity. And it might be comedy. Bridget Jones learns to cope with suddenly she's got two guys. Or it could be something much more serious, a memoir about someone that overcame a life-threatening illness. I think that that's what draws people to stories. I was a volunteer on an archaeological expedition to the outback of Australia, and we were mapping cave art. And the cave art, which is basically painted stories, of this particular Aborigine tribe that invited us to come in and look at them, it dated back to 43,000 years ago. So we've been telling stories for a long time. And the reason why they're still relevant today in the 21st century as they were back then is stories really are our primary way of learning. I often give a talk to groups of non-writers about the six most important words in the English language are let me tell you a story because it'll get everyone's attention by the end of the story. If it's successful, they may not have changed, but they've learned the possibility of change and what is possible if they decide to follow that character and either do what they did or sometimes do the opposite. I mean, sometimes things are tragedy. We don't want to act like Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. We want to learn from them on what not to do. That kind of power behind storytelling, you, you can really distill it down to the character and their arc how they go from that learned behavior from childhood to having something disrupt their life to facing the adversity and then do they choose to change or not and is it a happily ever after or is it a tragedy and that's really all you need to start or to tell a story 
Thank you. I'm sure that's very helpful for any writers or aspiring writers listening. Now that you've written 47 books, do you find that you have more of a methodical approach compared to when you first started? How has where you draw inspiration from changed since you stopped practicing medicine? Okay, so there's two parts to that. Mm. First of all, my method. And the easy answer to that is I have none. 47 books and I haven't written the same book the same way twice. In fact, I have a couple books that I literally wrote backwards. I knew who lived or died at the end and went scene by scene backwards to figure out how they got there. I'm not very good as far as teaching any kind of method. The one thing for me is I have to understand the character arc, so that emotional arc, and that ties into theme. I really, really, really need to have a theme to keep me focused. Otherwise, any shiny, glittery idea for a scene and I'd just be running off and, oh, let's throw a UFO in. <laughs> the theme isn't like the theme that you're taught in school, like, oh, what is Beowulf really about? It's more about the emotional context that you want every scene in your story to reflect. If I'm writing a story about revenge, then every interaction is going to have at its core some inkling of revenge. Whether it's maybe just a couple and uh, they're just chit-chatting about the kid's day at school and something, he starts bringing up the teacher and she knows that he had an affair with her or admires her or something. And so as she's chopping vegetables for the salad, you're wondering if she's going to use a knife on her husband. You want to use that theme because that really helps you to focus your scenes and get the most energy and conflict and to have the audience feel that underlying spark that everything is connected and everything is meaningful. You just didn't throw this scene in there as a filler. I do need the character arc and I need to understand the theme. As far as things like how do I come up with all the different crimes and the twists and the medical stuff, I do follow quite a lot of FBI, Department of Justice, police newsletters, forensic newsletters. I get a lot of the cutting edge stories there. I'm always looking for the story that doesn't make the headline. The quirky little thing that happened in the middle of nowhere and it barely gets mentioned because then I can take that and run with it. And the same for medical stuff. I subscribe to quite a number of medical letters. I still read a bunch of journals, science journals, you name it. Try to keep abreast. And again, I'm always looking at that story that could be twisted and that I can use the facts. Sometimes I'll push them a little bit to the edge. Although usually what happens is by the time the book's published, the science has already been established because it takes a while to get a book published with a traditional publisher. The first one in my latest trilogy called The Next Widow, I used what, when I was first roughing that idea out and building those characters, was some very cutting edge research. Some of it was done by the Department of Defense, as well as other advanced research areas. And in one of them, they had two guys wearing EEGs. They were both trained fighter pilots or drone pilots. And they were sitting in rooms and buildings miles apart. And yet through Wi-Fi, one of them was controlling a joystick, but he wasn't making the hand movements 
the other pilot was feeding the information through the interconnectivity. I got complaints about that book because everyone's like, oh my God, what a science fiction twist. Well, no, actually that research is six years old and that's now stuff. They're going so much deeper. They're doing those special brain implants. They've gotten them down to literally nanofibers and Elon Musk has that whole vision of his company that is about doing neurostimulation and neurocontrol. This is out there. I'm just the first person that you've ever read it wait five years and you'll reread that book and go oh yeah yeah that's that's old hat so sometimes I get a little too far ahead of myself but I always try to base my crimes and my medicine my science in reality and then push it so that it serves the needs of my story that's so crazy how something that was unheard of five years ago seems completely normal today I wonder what we'll have five years from now I first use CRISPR-Cas gene editing 2012 as the basis of a book about prion disease and fatal insomnia. People were like, oh, this is incredible. Could this really happen? Less than one year into the COVID pandemic, and we had mRNA vaccines. And that's all from that same technology that less than 10 years ago, people were amazed by. And that was complete science fiction. Wow, that's incredible. I think the pandemic has and probably will inspire so much literature that we'll see in the coming years. Now we'll take a quick break to hear a short message from our sponsors. AMBOSS is a medical knowledge platform built on three fundamental elements. At the core, a comprehensive medical library helps students learn the facts and the nuances of medicine. Also central is the QBank. By using these tools, students unlock the third element, personalized analytics which helps students make smart studying decisions. Three essential tools of learning, all in one place. It's no surprise AMBOSS has become one of the most popular resources for students and schools worldwide. Ready to take a closer look? Sign up for a free trial today at AMBOSS.com. Switching gears a bit now, could you share a bit about the business and marketing side of writing? I read that you realized how important this was and taught yourself many skills. Even if you end up hiring someone else, which a lot of, especially self-published, but also traditionally published authors do, you need to understand what's going on. And also, I think it's really important for authors to maintain control of connection to readers. I'm not really into social media, so my main connection to readers is through my mailing list. I used to do it every month, but now that everyone has a mailing list, I just feel like it's too easy to get lost. So now I just do it when I have a release or something exciting to give them because I want them when they open up my newsletter, I want it to be like, oh, I haven't heard from her for a while. Wow, this is cool. Yeah, I'm so glad she wrote. I always want something of value in the reader. If I'm going to waste her time with an email that is just about me, that's not serving them. And that's how you get people leaving your mailing list. I try to be very careful about that. You have to be genuine. It's really worthwhile. There's so many great resources out there. There was nothing when I started, which is why I had to self-teach and had a lot of trial and error. But there's so many great resources One that I highly recommend, full disclaimer, she's a good friend of mine, is Joanna Penn's thecreativepen.com. And that's Penn, P-E-N-N, wealth of information. She's got courses, 
books, audio, whatever you need. And she interviews a lot of experts in different fields. And it's all free. Ally, which is the Alliance of Independent Authors, offers a wealth of resources too for people just starting out. But if you're going to do this and you want to make a living at it and it's your career, you need to treat it like any other professional career. Go get the training. Go get good at what you're doing. Understand not just who your audience is, but what you have to offer them. One of the best books I ever read on business, or you could watch his TED Talks, is Simon Sinek, Start With Why. And he now has a sequel to it called Find Your Why. And it's about how businesses and creators and entrepreneurs need to understand what value they're giving their customer. And I think that's also very important, especially nowadays, because the publishing market is flooded. I mean, when I started on Amazon, there was a million books. Now I think it's up to 20 million titles. And it's very hard for a reader to find what they're looking for unless you know how to communicate what you're offering them and why it's worth their while to take the time to go look for it. I can imagine that it must be so challenging to be recognized in this sea of content and find a way to stand out. Could you tell us about your Buy a Book, Make a Difference program? Buy a Book, Make a Difference program started when I first hit the New York Times list. And I wanted a way to celebrate that wasn't so much about the books as it was giving back to all my readers. What I did was I established a charity foundation and with every new book that's published and every time a book hits the bestseller list, we give grants to a variety of different charities. Often they're charities that are kind of reflected in the book in some way, or I'll send a newsletter out and let readers have fun nominating charities. I found some great new charities that way and have helped to support some readers that have charities that are very close to their heart. I established a scholarship in the U.S. There's a lot of communities that are left out of what people think of as policing. They're very rural with large areas covered by very few sheriff's deputies, or they have a very small police department that's underfunded. A lot of times they have to close the police department and merge with other departments. It's literally possible for criminals here to find areas where they can get away with murder. A lot of police departments don't have any money for forensic training and they don't have access to forensic technicians or lab. So the Biobook Make a Difference Jeffrey Farkas Scholarship has funded, I think it's 78 now, scholarships for rural police departments to send officers to get forensic training. And then they can take that training back and teach their other officers what is the current forensic protocol for bagging biologics or what have you. That is just another way to, to give something back. And I named it after a fellow pediatric intern of mine who was murdered halfway through our internship year. Jeff is really the reason why I switched from writing science fiction to crime thrillers because everything changed with his death. His killer was caught within a few days because several different departments, they didn't fight over boundaries or territories. Instead, they cooperated. 
they used all of their forensic resources to find his killer. That's the reason why I thought that he would definitely appreciate the scholarship to help other communities. I'm so sorry to hear that about your friend. And I love that you're using his name to make such a positive difference. To wrap up, what three pieces of advice would you share with medical students interested in writing books? This is going to sound a bit trite and easy, but honestly, it's the hardest thing I've had to learn. And that is what we alluded to earlier when we were discussing audiences and understanding where your characters, how their development occurred. And that is know yourself. You need to know where your passion lies. Because if you're not passionate, if you're just doing it because all the other bestsellers are in the same genre and you just want to make some money, the readers know that. You have to be genuine. You have to know yourself. You have to know why you're writing this book. If you're writing it for publication at all, maybe you're just writing it as a catharsis. Maybe you're not even writing stories. Maybe you're writing a journal or a memoir or poetry. It doesn't matter, but you have to understand what your goal is. I had no intention of publishing early on, especially not the books that were cathartic for me to write during medical school. Those were fun. That's what I needed. So they were quite valuable, but not in the sense of making me change my profession at that time. And you also have to know what you don't know, which means getting out there. And if you want to take this seriously and you think you want to get published and make it a career or side hustle, then you need to go take classes. You need to know what works and what doesn't. Your audience deserves the best you can give. You have to treat it as a professional. So know yourself. And then know your audience. Who are you writing for? What's in it for them? Why would they be attracted to your books? Why would they want to spend four to eight hours with your characters? You have to really understand that. And then that goes into knowing your story. Are you achieving what you're trying to do? It's so easy to get caught up in having fun with the words and the action Sometimes you forget about the characters and the emotions or the other way around. You get too melodramatic and it's all about characters and emotions, but they're just sitting around doing nothing. You understand that balance, how to put it all together. Know yourself, know your reader, know your story. That's it. Thank you so much. That's fantastic advice. And thank you so much again for being on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure and privilege to have you. Well, you're quite welcome. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast episode. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something new. We would really appreciate it if you subscribed, gave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. For more content and resources from That Medic Network, please follow us on our social media. All the links are in the podcast description below. Thank you and have a good week.